When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 458th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Blah, 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 blah. I want to suck your blood, Kelly. You want to suck my blood? <laughs> <laughs> well, if nobody can guess what we're doing there, this episode is on vampires. We always like to do some of the creepier and weirder type of stuff when it comes to October. So we're finishing out the month with vampires. Last year we did werewolves. Do you believe in vampires, Kelly? Actually, I do, but maybe not in the formation of somebody that can change into a bat and flit away. You're totally thinking (laughs) mosquitoes, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. And you know what? You have just the right blood type for them because they love you. Clearly, I'm your natural mosquito repellent. You are. As long as I've got you in front of me, I don't get bitten (laughs) up as much. I used to be the one who always got it. So now I'm not so much of a victim. I guess not. You know what else I refer to as vampires? What's that? Those people who take our blood. Every time I go in for a blood dry, say I'm going to see the vampires. Yes, indeed. I suppose if I called them that, they wouldn't think it was very funny. Yeah, I don't know. I've met a few with a good sense of humor, so who knows? Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Kelsey with a K, Pam, Stephanie with an F, BJ, Kitty with an I at the end, Jennifer, Kim, Cheryl, and Paula. Thank you so much for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. I'm sure many of us have heard of or used the phrase, it's the world's smallest violin and it's playing just for you. This is typically said in lack of pity to someone's whining about this, that, or the other. The first pop culture reference was on the TV show MASH by Major Margaret Houlihan a.k.a. Hot Lips Houlihan. Now, take that tiny violin and flip it on its ear and imagine the world's largest floating violin. That violin would be named Noah's Violin. The violin was created by Venetian artist Livio de Marquis. The violin was not playable, however, it did host a string quartet aboard playing Vivaldi as it motorboated down Venice's Grand Canal in September of 2021. De Marquis came up with the idea during Italy's lockdown and stated that it represented Venice's restarting, bringing a message of hope artistically and culturally. Artistry can take many different forms, but a giant violin watercraft certainly is odd. to suck your blood. Blah, blah. How was that, Bela? Did I do it right? Or how about this? Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make. (laughs) And now, this month in history. month of October, on the 31st in 1941, Mount Rushmore National Monument was completed. 
1923, a South Dakota historian wanted to attract tourists to the state and decided that a sculpture in the Black Hills area may just fit the bill. The historian was Doan Robinson, and Gutson Borglum, a Danish-American sculptor, was hired to help with the project. Borglum, along with his son Lincoln, proposed that the sculpture be focused on the nation and suggested four presidents should be carved. George Washington is the founding father of our nation, Thomas Jefferson for the signing of the Louisiana Purchase and the author of the Declaration of Independence, Abraham Lincoln for leading the nation through the Civil War and preserving our country at any cost, and Theodore Roosevelt due to his representation of conservation and the industrial boom. The mountain chosen to be carved was known to the Lakotas as the Six Grandfathers. The work began in 1927 and until completion employed more than 400 men which consisted of mostly miners. They may not have been artists, but they knew how to use dynamite and jackhammers. Each president's face is 60 feet high. The original plan was to carve each president to their waist. However, when funds ran out, it was determined that the sculptures were complete on the 31st of October, 1941. Overall, the project cost $989,992.32 and took 14 years to finish. Vampire-like creatures have been part of folklore for centuries. Much of what we believe about vampires has come from fictional works. But is it possible that undead entities that subsist on blood are real? There are several historical figures that either have connections to vampire lore or are cited as possible vampires. Could anyone who consumes blood be considered a vampire? Join us as we explore the origins of vampire lore and examine stories of reputed vampires. The folklore surrounding vampirism dates back centuries, and the initial vampire-like creatures were basically revenants. A revenant is a human corpse, or the undead that rises from its grave. In most stories, the revenant is harmful to humans. Depending on the culture, a revenant can be either a spirit, a walking corpse, or a demon. The etymology of the term vampire is hard to pin down, and there are many theories. Believe me, I got involved in a bunch of these papers that I found online, and I was like pulling my hair out going, okay, I have no idea where this word originated. Here's what basically, if I combined a bunch of the stuff and a lot of the common stuff I got. Some scholars claim it goes back to the Greek. Others claim that it has a Hungarian origin. Balkan countries used words that translated as wolf fairy. Don't you love that for a vampire? <laughs> I actually do. It's... I'll go with that one more. Yeah. The word vampire was introduced in Germany in 1721. It entered the English lexicon in 1732 and the French in 1737. Where the term started really isn't as interesting as the actual subject. Why did cultures even start coming up with vampire lore? The creation of these stories basically comes down to a lack of knowledge about disease and decay. The typical human corpse goes through a series of changes as it decomposes. Generally, we would not know about these changes unless we dug somebody up. And that is what they did. Dug people up. And the reason this would be done was because someone in town got a wasting disease and villagers assumed that someone was taking the essence out of this person. Rumors would start that somebody had returned from the dead the disinterred corpse would appear to still have growing hair and nails, and blood would possibly be streaming from the mouth or nose. Internal decay causes bloating, forces blood out of the body, and that's why it would look like blood had flown out of a mouth. Oh, yummy. <laughs> Great. Nails and hair seem to continue to grow because the skin would pull back as the body dried. And if the circumstances were right, a body might be preserved for a very long time. Vampire superstition thrived in the Middle Ages, especially as the plague decimated entire towns. The disease often left behind bleeding mouth lesions on its victims, which to the uneducated was a sure sign of vampirism. It wasn't uncommon for anyone with an unfamiliar physical or emotional illness to be labeled a vampire. Many researchers have pointed to porphyria, a blood disorder that can cause severe blisters on skin that's exposed to sunlight, as a disease that may have been linked to the vampire legend. In the late 1800s, tuberculosis of the lungs was referred to as consumption because it took a while to kill its victims. They seemed to waste away as they coughed up blood. The ill would grow pale and stop eating. 
Eventually, they'd look almost like what most people would assume a vampire would appear to look like. At one point, one out of four people were dying from this disease. Villagers were positive that a family of vampires was living in their midst. When did these stories start to be told, though? Surprisingly, the belief in vampire-like creatures was very prominent in Arabia. The earliest references found by archaeologists were on Chaldean and Assyrian tablets. Stories were found in Babylonian writing, and vampires made it into Roman and Grecian works. Romans started adopting the cremating of bodies to ensure they wouldn't rise again. The Greeks and Romans spread their superstitions to Romania, Hungary, Austria, Poland, the British Isles, and even Iceland. The first documented vampire hunt took place in 1345 in France. The Aswang was a popular vampire-like creature in Asia, starting in the 16th century. When we've done our Legends of the Philippines, we've talked about that. So I recall. Pretty bizarre-looking creature. It's only like the top half, I think, if I remember, with the entrails hanging down and fangs like a vampire. Chile had a blood-sucking snake known as a Puchen. De Grecorum Hodi Quirundum Opinationibus was published in Greece in 1645 and was considered the first written text on the treatment of vampirism. The height of vampire fever hit Europe from the 1720s to the 1730s. So much for the Age of Enlightenment. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. And much of the well-known folklore comes out of 18th century Europe. Vampires made it into modern fiction with the publication of The Vampire, spelled with a Y, by the English writer John Polidori in 1819. Vampires got much of their start in America in New England in the late 18th century and early 19th century. Much of what we have as our vampire lore was developed from Bram Stoker's Dracula. This tome is really when vampires went from disgusting and horrific-looking creatures to charismatic, good-looking, and sensual. Ooh la la. (laughs) Well, and nowadays, I mean, even when you look back at Dracula, it's like, Bela Lugosi's an okay-looking guy, I guess. I wouldn't naturally think that he was really sensual. But now you look at, like, true blood and stuff. And And the sparkly vampires. Yeah, and I hate to mention Twilight, (laughs) but yeah. So now you've really moved into the good-looking and sensual. From the novel Dracula, we get the following traits of vampires. They are immortal, have the strength of 20 men. They can take the form of an animal like a dog, bat, or wolf, have no reflection in a mirror, can appear as a mist. Holy water and crosses repel them. They cast no shadow. They are pale with lips that can be a deep red depending on whether they've recently fed. They must sleep in dirt from their native land. They can't enter a home unless invited inside, and they can change their victims into vampires. What happened to the garlic? Oh, I guess I didn't get that in there. They can be (laughs) repelled by garlic too, Kelly. That's why I like it so much. (laughs) So you're definitely not a vampire. It is from the 1922 movie Nosferatu that we get the idea that a vampire can be destroyed by sunlight. So did you know that until that movie came out, that was not a part of the lore? I did not. Which to me is interesting because when you go back to what we were talking about with that... The blisters? Porphyria, when they would get blisters on their skin, I'm assuming that they were thinking it was because they couldn't be in the sunlight? I would make that assumption for sure. So I don't know. That just seems really weird to me that that was the first time that that was really ever thought to incorporate that kind of idea. These are considered the traditional characteristics. Some stories vary from this, you know, like the sparkly vampires that you just (laughs) mentioned, Kelly. Yes. Which I absolutely abhor. I know you do, but I enjoyed the movies. Yeah, I'm not I just lie. couldn't get into them. I didn't read the books. I might have liked it a little bit better. Didn't have that sparkly thing going on. I'm like, no, you can't be in the sun. What's wrong with you? And of course, now we have the brand new series interview with a vampire. I think it came out on AMC based on Anne Rice's work. So I haven't seen any of those. If any of our listeners have, you'll have to let us know. The one core characteristic for all of them is a need for a vampire to consume blood. The story element that one can only become a vampire if they're bitten by a vampire is more of a recent idea. It was actually thought to be possible that one could be born a revenant. Folklorist Paul Barber wrote in his 2008 book, Vampires, Burial, and Death, Folklore and Reality, that centuries ago, often potential revenants can be identified at birth usually by some abnormality, some defect, as when a child is born with teeth. Ouch, if a baby's born with teeth. (laughs) They get them in pretty quickly anyway, so depending (laughs) upon how long you're breastfeeding, (laughs) it can be an issue. Gotcha. 
Similarly suspicious are children born with an extra nipple. In Romania, for example, with a lack of cartilage in the nose or a split lower lip in Russia, when a child is born with a red call or amniotic membrane covering its head, this was regarded throughout much of Europe as presumptive evidence that it is destined to return from the dead. So you got to wonder if this child survives birth and they have some of the membranes still on them, do they think, okay, well, all throughout your life, you're going to know that once you die, you're coming back as an undead thing? <laughs> it's just, wow, great way to live. There are many superstitious practices taken up after a person died to prevent them from rising from the grave and attacking people. We already mentioned cremation, which got started by the Greek and the Romans. Sometimes a large stone was crammed in the mouth of the corpse before being buried so that if the person did rise, they couldn't feed on anybody. And I know we've had people post in our Spooktacular crew pictures of this. You know, most people would say, well, why don't they just reach up and pull the stone out of their mouth and then they can start feeding again? It's such a big stone. It's like unhinged their jaw and there's no way they can use their mouth anymore. In some places, a long nail was driven through the skull of the corpse and other places drove a stake not only into the body, but all the way through to the ground so they would be pinned down. White thorn or ashwood was popular for making stakes. Iron stakes were also used. And I've also heard when people, they love that iron thing, they'd make those iron horseshoes to put above their houses to keep vampires from being able to come in. An interesting touch at some burials was to plant a thorny wild rose bush near the body, or at least put the stem from such a plant on the body, so that if the body tried to rise, the burial shroud would get entangled and trap the undead person. <laughs> okay. I can't get out of the bush. I guess I can't feed. A corpse's arms might be crossed or a crucifix placed over the body to help prevent reanimation. Burial at four crossroads was also thought to work, which I found very interesting because we talk about the devil at the crossroads. And usually we're just thinking... You know, this road and this road, two roads crossing each other. I'm like, four crossroads? What does that mean? The strangest thing we read was that a corpse could be rubbed with the lard of a pig killed on St. Ignatius Day to prevent vampirism. Oh, my. Ooh. So, Kelly, let's look at some of these figures in history that were thought to be vampires. The first historical person to be described as a vampire in records is believed to be Urigrando Alilovic who lived from 1579 to 1656. He lived in what is today Croatia. Urigrando was called a strigan, which was something akin to a vampire and a warlock. The legend claims that he died from an illness in 1656 and then rose from the grave every night for many years, terrorizing the people of the town of Kringa. There would be a knock on the door of a house in the village and someone from that house would die shortly thereafter. A priest in the town, Father Giorgio, claimed to come face to face with the vampire and said he held out a cross in front of the vampire and yelled, Behold Jesus Christ, you vampire, stop tormenting us. In 1672, the corpse of Yuri was dug up and found to be perfectly preserved with a smile on his face. The group of villagers tried to pierce the chest with a hawthorn stick, but it didn't penetrate. They then sawed the head off. The vampire screamed through the process. The region was no longer terrorized. So did it happen or not? I don't know, but this is the first person that they say was out there as a vampire. This next one, of course, everyone has heard of, Vlad the Impaler. Vlad Sepish was also known as Vlad Dracul, and he was born in Transylvania, Romania, and ruled Wallachia, Romania at different times from 1456 to 1462. Depending on who was telling his story, he was either a hero or a sadistic tyrant who was very cruel. He did fight off the Ottoman Empire for his people. Many scholars believe that Bram Stoker named Count Dracula in his novel Dracula after Vlad Dracul. The name Dracul comes from the Romanian word for dragon because Vlad II was inducted into the knightly order of the dragon. Stories about Vlad claim that he dined among his dying victims and even dipped his bread in their blood. 80,000 people were said to have been killed by Vlad. It makes sense that his barbaric reputation would inspire the character of Count Dracula. But he was not a vampire. The man did die. He did not come back from the dead. Let me put it this way. Vlad is one of those people that I think his legend is a little bit bigger than life. I don't know that he did a lot of the stuff that they said he did. He probably might have impaled some people. I don't know. But I, I don't think that he was going around like cannibalizing and drinking blood and doing all this other stuff. Right. And... Talking about impaling, 
oftentimes people, when they're warring against each other, they would do that with their enemies as a warning to anybody else coming Absolutely. around. Absolutely. I could see. I mean, they used to do it when they would take people out and execute them like pirates and stuff. They would put their bodies up at the city gate and say, don't mess with us. We'll punish you. Yeah. Put them in gibbets. Yeah. So I totally could see that that's what happened here. But you'll see when they have specials on TV that he's sitting in this field full of people that are being impaled and sliding down these poles. And it's like, I don't really see him setting up a table out in the middle of all that. No. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. The History Goes Bump podcast has been in production for eight years now, and all eight years have been with Libsyn as our host. If you're looking to get started in podcasting, Check out Libsyn.com and use promo code BUMP, that's B-U-M-P, to get up to two months of free podcasting service. Libsyn has always given us great customer service and support. They have real-time podcast analytics so you can see how your show is doing, embeddable podcast players, free podcast guides and tutorials, and everything you'll need to get started in podcasting today. Go to Libsyn.com and use promo code B-U-M-P. And now we're on to Mercy Brown, who was 19 when she contracted the galloping variety of tuberculosis. This meant that the disease moved swiftly. Mercy passed away on January 17, 1892. Her body was placed in a stone crypt, awaiting the spring thaw to be buried. Her brother Edwin also had tuberculosis, and as his symptoms got worse, the people of the town started blaming a vampire for the Brown family's woes. They were certain that the vampire was living inside one of the brown grapes. This belief was held in more than just the town of Exeter. At least 80 burials have been found in recent years that appear to exhibit signs that people had been exhumed and their bodies desecrated in some way as to stop them from rising from their graves. The patriarch of the family, George Brown, grew desperate as his son became sicker and he started to believe that perhaps the neighbors were right and a vampire was stalking his family. It was decided that they needed to exhume his family members and find out which of them was the vampire. George and Dr. Harold Metcalf exhumed the bodies of George's wife and one of his daughters on March 17, 1892. They were both already skeletal. They next exhumed Mercy's body, and it was still fully intact because she had been placed in the cool crypt and it was winter. Decomposition had not really begun. The two men also believed that they found fresh blood on her body. Mercy Brown was the vampire. Mercy's body was cut open, and when her organs were found to be still full of blood, everyone was certain that the ritual that they were about to embark upon was right. Mercy's heart was removed and burned. The ashes were collected and mixed with water so that Edwin could drink the concoction. It was believed that this would cure Edwin of the vampire attacks and break the spell. Edwin was obviously not cured. Historically, it was recorded that Mercy Brown was the last vampire exhumation. She might sound familiar to some of you listeners because we actually did a whole episode on her. So, expect there somewhere. These next two are ones that we heard about when we were in New Orleans and took our vampire tour, the Carter Brothers. When taking a vampire tour in New Orleans, you'll most definitely hear the story of the Carter Brothers. John and Wayne Carter lived in a house in the French Quarter. They kidnapped people, tied them to chairs in their house, slit their wrists open, catching the blood in cups, and then they drank the blood. They wouldn't completely drain their victims at once. They would leave the home before sunrise and return after dark. They would reopen the wounds at the wrists of their victims and drink the blood. They never did anything to care for their victims, like, you know, giving them food or water. I just thought that's kind of stupid because if you want to keep maintaining them as a source (laughs) of blood for you, you probably want to keep them sustained a little bit. A little counterintuitive. They just let them slowly die. No one knew this was happening until one of their victims managed to escape while the Carter brothers were gone during the day. This was in 1932, and the victim was a young girl. She ran down Royal Street until she found a police officer. She told him her story and showed him her wrist, but he was skeptical because the story sounded so far-fetched. He did gather a group of officers, and they visited the house where they were shocked to find four other victims. They were half dead and tied to chairs with bloody, bandaged wrists. Two dead victims were also found wrapped in blankets. The brothers were arrested and they begged to be put to death because they believed they were vampires and couldn't stop what they were doing. They were tried, convicted, and executed. Legend claims that when the vault where their bodies were placed was opened a year and a day later, which is what they do in New Orleans, there were no remains. 
there are actually no records of the Carter brothers, either in the city or police records. Did they ever exist? I went to a website that actually goes through death penalty records and had all of them for New Orleans, all the names, the years they were put to death. There were like two people who had the last name Carter, not anywhere near these dates. They weren't brothers, totally different things. If this happened in the 1930s, we're going to have some record of it. So I think this is probably just a legend. Good story for a walking tour. But there are those who claim that they see the Carter brothers occasionally in the city. Many times they're reported standing on the second floor balcony of the home where they used to live, both thin and smartly dressed. Also, another one that comes out in New Orleans that we're not going to get into because we dedicated a whole episode to him is the Count of St. Germain. A lot of people believe that he's a vampire. We discussed the whole specifics around that on that episode. Yep, that was a great episode. And there's also going to be people who are like, wait, you didn't talk about Elizabeth Bathory. We did an episode on her as well. My conclusions have always been that that's a bunch of gibberish that they tell us about her. This is not a woman who was taking like 600 young women, draining them of their blood and bathing in their blood in order to keep her youth. This was a woman who had a lot of power and land. Her family did not like it. They walled her up in a room and let her die and then started this story about her. So I don't believe that anything they say about Elizabeth Bathory is true. I believe it was her family. I think what it mostly is, is not blood family. I think it was either, it might be blood family, but it was extended family or it was in-law type family, something like that, that wanted to get her property from her. Kind of like what we saw with the Salem witch hunts. Exactly. We're going to say these horrible things about this woman so that we can lock her up and take the stuff away from her. And that's what I believe happened here. Let's look at some historical accounts of vampire-like activity. There was a castle in the north of England where the vampires so frightened all the people that no one ever ventured out of doors between sunset and sunrise. The sons of one of his supposed victims at length opened his grave and pierced his body, from which a great quantity of blood immediately flowed, which plainly proved that a large number of persons had been his victims. In Volume 3 of Borderland by occultist Dr. Franz Hartmann, he shared a couple of narratives. A young lady of, and all he gives us is the letter G, had an admirer who asked her in marriage, but as he was a drunkard, she refused and married another. Thereupon, the lover shot himself, and soon after that event, a vampire, assuming his form, visited her frequently at night, especially when her husband was absent. She could not see him, but she felt his presence in a way that could leave no room for doubt. The medical faculty did not know what to make of the case. They called it hysterics and tried in vain every remedy in the pharmacopoeia until she at last had the spirit exercised by a man of strong faith. Another case is that of a miller at, and he only gives us the letter D, who had a healthy servant boy who soon after entering his service began to fail in health. He had a ravenous appetite, but nevertheless grew daily more feeble. Being interrogated, he at last confessed that a thing which he could not see, but which he could plainly feel, came to him every night and sat upon his stomach, drawing all the life out of him, so that he became paralyzed for the time being and could neither move nor cry out. Sounds like sleep paralysis, doesn't it? Thereupon, the miller agreed to share the bed with the boy and proposed to him that he should give him a certain sign when the vampire arrived. This was done, and when the sign was given, the miller grasped the invisible but very tangible substance that rested upon the boy's stomach, and although it struggled to escape, he grasped it firmly and threw it into the fire. After that, the boy recovered his health and there was no repetition of the vampire's visits. Isn't that weird? It is. And it was invisible? He just grabs it and throws it in the fire and that was it. Dr. Hartman also contributed the following story to the Occult Review for September 1909 under the title of An Authenticated Vampire Story. On June 10, 1909, there appeared in a prominent Vienna paper, the Nuez Weiner Journal, a notice saying that the castle of B, that's all he's giving us, he sure likes to cover for wherever these places are, apparently, had been burned by the populace because there was a great mortality among the peasant children. And it was generally believed that this was due to the invasion of a vampire, supposed to be the last count, B, whatever this castle of is, who died and acquired that reputation. The castle was situated in a wild and desolate part of the Carpathian Mountains and was formerly a fortification against the Turks. It was not inhabited, owing to its being believed to be in the possession of ghosts. Only a wing of it was used as a dwelling for the caretaker and his wife. I want to know what this place is just for the ghosts. <laughs> exactly. Now, it so happened that when I read the above notice, I was sitting in a coffee house at Vienna in company with an old friend of mine, 
who's an experienced occultist and editor of a well-known journal, and who had spent several months in the neighborhood of the castle. From him I obtained the following account, and it appears that the vampire in question was probably not the old count, but his beautiful daughter, the Countess Elga, whose photograph, taken from the original painting, I obtained. My friend said, Two years ago I was living at Hermannstadt, and being engaged in engineering a road through the hills, I often came within the vicinity of the old castle, where I made the acquaintance of the old Castellan, or caretaker, and his wife, who occupied a part of the wing of the house almost separate from the main body of the building. They were a quiet old couple, and rather reticent in giving information or expressing an opinion in regard to the strange noises which were often heard at night in the deserted halls, or of the apparitions which the Wallachian peasants claimed to have seen when they loitered in the surroundings after dark. All I could gather was that the old count was a widower and had a beautiful daughter, who was one day killed by a fall from her horse, and that soon after the old man died in some mysterious manner, and the bodies were buried in a solitary graveyard belonging to a neighboring village. Not long after their death, an unusual mortality was noticed among the inhabitants of the village. Several children and even some grown people died without any apparent illness. They merely wasted away. And thus a rumor was started that the old count had become a vampire after his death. There is no doubt that he was not a saint, and he was addicted to drinking, and some shocking tales were in circulation about his conduct and that of his daughter. But whether there was any truth in them, I'm not in a position to say. This was a story from Crete. Once upon a time in the village of Calicrati in the district of Slakia was haunted by a catechonus, which is the term for vampire there. And the people did not know what man he was or from what part he came. This catechonus destroyed both children and full-grown men and desolated both that village and many others. They had buried him at the church of St. George at Calicrati, and in those times he was regarded as a man of note and they had built an arch over his grave. So this shepherd comes along and seeks shelter from a storm where this vampire was buried. And he and the vampire actually strike up a bit of a friendship that evening. But after the vampire returns from killing people and brings the shepherd a liver, the shepherd lost no time, but he gave information to the priests and others. And they went to the tomb. And there they found the catechonus, just as he had been buried. And all people became satisfied that it was he who had done all the evil deeds. On this account, they collected a great deal of wood, and they cast him on it and burnt him. His gossip was not present, but when the catechonus was already half consumed, he too came forward in order that he might enjoy the ceremony. And the catechonus cast, as it were, a single spot of blood, and it fell on his foot, which wasted away, as if it had been roasted on a fire. On this account, they sifted even the ashes and found a little fingernail of the catechonus unburnt, and burnt it, too. Apparently, the tradition holds that you got to burn every last bit of them. Clearly. At the beginning of the 18th century, several vampire investigations were held at the instigation of the Bishop of Olmutz. The village of Liabava was particularly infested, and a Hungarian placed himself on the top of the church tower and just before midnight saw a well-known vampire issue from his tomb and, leaving his winding sheet behind him, proceed on his rounds. The Hungarian descended from the tower and took away the sheet and ascended the tower again. When the vampire returned, he flew into a great fury because of the absence of the sheet. Almost makes you think he's like a ghost without his sheet. <laughs> right? The Hungarian called to him to come up to the tower and fetch it. The vampire mounted the ladder, but just before he reached the top, the Hungarian gave him a blow on the head, which threw him down to the churchyard. His assailant then descended, cut off the vampire's head with a hatchet, and from that time, the vampire was no more heard of. There are reports from a cemetery in Bulgaria... And this is a list of people who were buried in just this single cemetery in Bulgaria. These are the different vampires that they have there. Number one, a woman of the name of Stana, 20 years of age, who had died three months before of a three days illness following her confinement. She had before her death avowed that she had anointed herself with the blood of a vampire to liberate herself from his persecution. Nevertheless, she had died. Her body was entirely free from decomposition. On opening it, the chest was found filled with recently effused blood, and the bowels had exactly the appearance of sound health. The skin and nails of her hands and feet were loose and came off, but underneath were new skin and nails. Pretty weird. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. I could see the skin usually comes off with decomposition, but wow. The second one, a woman of the name of Meliza who had died at the end of a three-month illness. The body had been buried 90 and odd days. In the chest was liquid blood. The viscera were in the former instance. 
The body was declared by a high duck who recognized it to be in better condition and fatter than it had been in the women's legitimate lifetime. So she looked better when she was dead. <laughs> a little bit bloated, are we? Yeah, just a little. Number three was the body of an eight-year-old child that had likewise been buried 90 days. It, too, was in the vampire condition. The son of a high duck named Millock, 16 years old. The body had lain in the grave nine weeks. He had died after three days in disposition and was in the condition of a vampire. The fifth one is Joaquim, likewise the son of a high duck, 17 years old. He had died after three days illness and had been buried eight weeks and some days, was found in the vampire state. A man of the name of Russia had died of an illness of 10 days duration and had been six weeks buried, in whom likewise fresh blood was found in the chest. Number seven was the body of a girl 10 years of age who had died two months before. It was likewise in the vampire state, perfectly undecomposed with blood in the chest. The body of the wife of one Hadnuck, buried seven weeks before, and that of her infant eight weeks old, buried only 21 days. They were both in a state of decomposition, though buried in the same ground and closely adjoining the others. So apparently they're just guilty by being close to them? Guilty by association? I guess. Number nine is a servant by name Rade, 23 years of age. He had died after an illness of three months duration, and the body had been buried five weeks. It was in a state of decomposition. The body of the hay duck Stanko, 60 years of age, who had died six weeks previously. There was much blood and other fluid in the chest and abdomen, and the body was in a vampire condition. Milak, a hay duck, 25 years old. The body had been in the earth six weeks. It was also in the vampire condition. And finally, Stanjoika, the wife of a hay duck, 20 years old, had died after an illness of three days and had been buried 18. The countenance was florid. There was blood in the chest and in the heart. The viscera were perfectly sound. The skin remarkably flush. Oh, my. Marita Woywad Crandall owns the Boutique du Vampire Shop in the French Quarter in New Orleans. We loved the shop. And while there, we picked up her book, New Orleans Vampire's History and Legend. And in there, she shares a story about a visitor to her shop that unnerved her and almost convinced her that vampires may actually exist. So she writes that she opened Boutique du Vampire on January 1st, 2003. Now, this is not the location that it is today. This is a previous location. It was down a, I guess you could almost say an alleyway. It was really hard for people to find. She hated being there because it was hard to get tourists to come in there because, first of all, they're like, I don't know if I want to go down this shady alley. <laughs> and then it was hard to see. It's not like where it is today. And yes, we absolutely love that shop. And they even told us about the speakeasy that they have where you can go and they give you the code word and tell you where it is. And yeah, we really, hours. <laughs> we really wanted to go. But that first time was when we were on our trip from California to Florida. So yeah, it was a bit really late. work out. <laughs> yeah. So this first shop was at 726 Orleans and it was smack in the heart of the French Quarter. The front room was very large with two nice-sized windows looking out to Orland Street. There was a large, dramatic fireplace on the wall opposite the door. The shop consisted of just one large room, while additional private working space was just out of sight. Formerly constructed as an apartment, the kitchen was to the left, which we converted into our candle studio, where we crafted our fortune candles daily. There was another door that led to the bathroom and what would have been the bedroom, which we used for storage. She goes on to say that once in the kitchen or candle studio, it was impossible to see the front room, making it difficult to know if someone had entered. However, my German shepherd, Elke, came to work with me daily and was my alert when a customer came into the store. Elke was a very sweet dog, large for a female with a long jet black coat. She looked menacing, but was actually a very gentle soul. I could see Elke from my vantage point in the kitchen. She would be lying next to my desk by the fireplace. If a customer walked in, Elke would sit up and I knew someone was there. She was 12 years old at the time. Very mature, intelligent, and reasonable. She enjoyed company, but also wanted to make sure I was completely aware when someone had entered our space. And I should preface this, that she doesn't necessarily believe that there are such things as vampires, even though she has this shop and all this stuff going on. On one very strange evening, things with Elkie were not the same. I'd been in the candle studio for some time, setting up the molds, picking out the metal charms we put inside them, and melting the wax. What was about to transpire was so bizarre that every single detail is clearly ingrained in my mind to this day. Just as I was pouring the wax into the candle molds, Elkie stood up and started to growl. This was so unusual that it made me anxious, and I finished the pour as quickly as possible. I could hear someone enter the store. 
someone who walked with a cane. It was a distinct sound. I told Elkie to stop growling, but at the same time I was concerned, as that was not her normal behavior. I wasn't scared, I was just embarrassed and didn't want the customer to be frightened. I thought it was most likely the cane that was disturbing her. Perhaps she found it threatening. I hurried out as fast as I could and made my way to Elkie and the customer. If vampires existed, the man who stood at the entrance of our shop had the persona. He did not by any means appear to be in costume as a vampire tour guide might be, dressed in elaborate Victorian garb with makeup eyes and piercings ready to play the part. No, this man, while dressed in all black, wore what appeared to be expensive tailored pants and a dress shirt, as they fit his slender, tall build to perfection. I tried to tell myself that he looked Greek or Italian, so not to sound cliché, but truth be told, he appeared to me to be what I would consider Romanian. His cane was elaborate. An ornate silver handle was attached to a lovely wooden stick, and he maneuvered about the room with grace, much to Elkie's dislike. While I was petting Elkie's head, I felt the grumbling vibration of her low, almost silent growl continue. She felt threatened by him, something I had never seen in her 12 years. I continued to stroke her head and quietly told her to sit, but she would have no part of that. She stood to protect. The man made his way around the shop. Nervous, I greeted him as I would any customer, explaining that everything in the shop was handcrafted for us. I explained the fortune candles to him, all the while feeling Elkie's growl beneath my hand. It was the most unsettling feeling I have ever encountered. Meanwhile, he completely ignored me. He never looked in my direction. He seemed not to care one bit what I was painfully explaining to him. Then when he got to the small bookcase, he said, Do you have the history of the vampire? I was so pleased that he finally spoke, and I almost knew what he would sound like before any words had come out of his mouth. He spoke with what sounded like a Romanian accent, not put on by any means, but a true accent he did not care if I noticed or not. No, we don't, I quickly stuttered out. I only carry books that are signed by the authors. My voice shook and it embarrassed me, but that's a good idea, I'll have to consider that. I was so nervous and somehow wanted his approval. He did not seem disappointed, but maybe a little annoyed. He'd only looked at me briefly and then continued walking around the room when he said one last thing and it was more to himself than to me. I know people who would be very interested in this. At that point, I started to talk, but I have no idea what I was saying. I was probably trying to take his comment as a compliment, thinking he was pleased by what he saw. I was trying to smooth things between us over, and I felt he didn't care for me one bit. I didn't really think he was happy with the items in my shop at all. I think he was intrigued with the idea of the shop in general. Had he been a vampire, he might have considered it a compliment to himself. He took a few more moments walking about, and then he walked out of the shop as slowly as he'd been walking around it. He never looked back at me or seemed to care at all that I was there. As he took the two steps down, out of the shop and into the carriageway, I simultaneously sat down, as did Elkie. I patted her head and I said the words, That was weird. I saw Steve, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, walking by the windows in front of the shop. He walks with purpose, so my peripheral vision caught his presence immediately. I was so pleased as I knew Steve would basically be entering the carriageway as this man with the cane was exiting. It would have been impossible for them not to meet at the street entrance. This way, Steve would know exactly who I was talking about. However, when Steve walked in, I mentioned the strange man who had just left. Steve shrugged his shoulders and said that no one had just come from the shop. It had been an extremely slow day, as was the norm at that time. Traffic on the street in general was sparse. I argued with Steve briefly and reiterated that the strange man had just vacated the store. I got no response, so I bolted past Steve, down the carriageway and out the gate, only seconds after the man had left. There was not a soul on the street in either direction. Whether someone walked with a cane or not, it would have been impossible for anyone to disappear that quickly in any direction. Steve never understood my anxiety with or fascination about the situation. I say that's only because he did not get to meet the stranger with the cane. That unusual encounter haunts me to this day. I think what haunts me more is my absolute certainty that he will once again appear at Boutique du Vampire, now in a wonderful location for business at 709.5 St. Anne. And of course, their shop has grown in leaps and bounds since that time. But interesting, you have a woman who has a shop dedicated to vampires, doesn't totally believe in them, and then has this person come in that, I mean, that's pretty unusual. Whoever this guy was, he was weird. (laughs) Most definitely. And if nothing else, he was quite rude. (laughs) Very rude, actually. Didn't even, you know, usually you come into a shop and they're like, especially smaller shops. And if it was small, because it's not a big shop now. If it was a smaller shop, then you can just imagine, you know, walk in and 
you always greet them and they greet you. And then they say, you know, if you need help finding anything, I'm right here. Ask me any questions. And you get this person who won't even barely look at you. So are there such things as vampires? We guess the answer to this question depends upon the definition used to describe a vampire. If it simply is someone who drinks blood, then the answer is a clear yes. There are many modern-day sanguinarians who are vampire lifestylers. These are people involved in consensual relationships with people willing to have their blood drank. There are also spiritual vampires. These are people who drain others of their energy. We've all met a couple of these people. Oh, yes, we have. (laughs) I don't like being around them. But what about the traditional vampire? The creature that is undead and must drink blood to continue forward. Are they real? Do they exist? That is for you to decide. I've always loved vampires. Of course, I love my Frankenstein monster the most, but I cut my teeth on the Universal Dracula, that first movie, 1931, with Bela Lugosi. That's one of the, I believe it's the first horror movie I ever watched as a little kid. And I was just mesmerized and I wanted to be vampires for costumes. And I've loved that stuff ever since. Yeah, I definitely enjoy the original with Bella. Oh, yeah, totally. I want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Want to let you all know we have a new Redux up and it's perfect for the Halloween season. We have revisited Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman, especially now that we've actually been to Sleepy Hollow. It was such an amazing cemetery. I just regret not being able to spend more time there. And the whole city is so great. And of course, as we were going through and revisiting all of the haunted locations that are in this town, we're like, now we got to go back there because we didn't even know about all these places that we need to go visit. We just hit two of the cemeteries and we're out. So yes, we do. Definitely want to get back. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is a well-known piece of fiction written by Washington Irving in 1819. Many of us first heard the story in our youth, and the tale fueled our imagination with images of a headless horseman chasing a man through the forest, carrying a fiery pumpkin that represented his head. It was a terrifying tale. But is this just simply a piece of fiction? Or is there some truth to the story? Headless figures are quite common in the world of the paranormal, and the setting for Irving's story is a real place with real locations mentioned in the tale. As Diane said, we've actually gotten to visit it and even paid our respects at the cemetery, which is Irving's final resting place. Join us as we explore the legends of the Headless Horseman and the history and hauntings of Sleepy Hollow. Just then, he saw the goblin rising in his stirrups and in the very act of hurling his head at him. You can listen to that at the $5 and above level. You get all of the bonus casts, too. There's well over, I think I'm almost to 250 of those now. At the $10 and above, you get logo gear and stuff. So think about it, especially with the Christmas mailing coming up. You want to be on that list. We always send out a really cool magnet for everybody. Doesn't matter if you're at the dollar level or at the $100 level a month, you get the Christmas mailing. Everybody gets the same thing. I want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Sweet dreams.
vampire-like creatures have been part of for- folklore. I, I can't say folklore <laughs> ever. I always try to fork it. Fork it. Fork <laughs> that. Fork it, Kelly. Just fork talking right now. <laughs> <laughs> Much of what we believe about vampires has come from fish. Oh Fishional works. Here we go. We're forking some fish. <laughs> I want some mahi. <laughs> Give me some Dorado. Many researchers have pointed to porphyria. At... It's a day. I guess. It's a day. It's a day that we woke up. So it's a good day. It's because we recorded a couple <laughs> of things yesterday. So it's like, ah. Well, and we already did the yard work. So. Yes. Stories about Vlad claim that he dined among his dying victims and even dipped his and even and even dipped his. So as I was uh, reading what I wrote here, I had written dipped his blood in their bread. (laughs) So Kelly and I are having fun with that. I dip my blood in your bread. (laughs) Anyway, let's try this over. It makes sense that his barbaric reputation would inspire the character of Krant. Krant? It's Krant Dracula. It was believed that this would cure Empire of the Vamp. <laughs> this Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.